Father, we're just excited to be here, and it really truly is the start of our week. It's the time we gather in your name uh, under your leadership to listen for you, to worship you, to encounter you, to, uh, to get prepared to go out and to, to live life as you designed us to live it. And so we pray that uh, today, that as we come, that you would you'd meet us here in a powerful way. Give me freedom, I pray, as I, I teach. Just help me remember the things I've prepared and to be able to, to, to declare them, deliver them in a way that, that makes sense and that we can all latch on to what you're teaching. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our story starts today about three months ago. It was, uh, it was uh, early November, and it was a Friday, and, and Lynn and I were down at uh, UCLA for the day. That's where I hang out at the medical center. And, uh, you know, I've had this voice issue for years now, and they're still trying to figure it out. And so I had a couple appointments that day. And so the first one was, I think, at 10, and the second one was at 1. And so in between appointments, we had some time to kill. And so we headed for the, the local coffee bean there in Westwood. And so we had it down there, and uh, Lynn was going to get something to eat. Um, I couldn't eat because I had to eat a radioactive peanut butter sandwich in my next test. <laughs> and um, and so, uh, so she ordered, and so we come to the, we come to the counter, and uh, it was one of those coffee beans. You know, they have those, those counters you look out on the street through the glass, and so we're sitting on stools, and we're looking out here. And, th- and so the room's behind us, and so um, I can't eat, but I'm listening in this conversation. There's a couple students here, a couple college students, and they're obviously friends, good friends, and they haven't seen each other in a while, and so they're catching up, and they're about five, ten feet away, and so I can just listen in. And, uh, and so they're really excited to, be, uh, to see one another, how you doing, how your class is going, and so on. And this one guy's just like bummed. College is such a waste of time. I'm not learning anything. He says, really, is all your classes bad? No, there's just one class that I'm really loving. It's just so cool. It's on philosophy and religion. Well, today we're continuing our series <laughs> that we've been in for the last, uh, well, last six or seven months. And for those of you who are brand new, not only welcome, but we want to take a moment just to bring you up to speed. Uh, you can see the series title, you can see it on the wall, it's called Revealed. And it, it's a study of the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers, uh, closest friends. It's a man by the name of John. He wrote an account of the life and teaching of Jesus, and it's in their New Testament. It's called The Gospel of John. And we're actually in the third uh, little mini-series called uh, The Spirit and the Assignment. It covers chapters 13 through 17. And uh, these five chapters, they all take place, uh, they're basically a conversation between Jesus and his, his disciples. The last night he's with them before he's arrested and taken into custody. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know this scene. It's, it's, it's Passover meal. It's his last Passover. They have dinner, and after dinner, Jesus begins to let them know what's going to be happening later that night. And it's not good news. It's bad news. And they are just totally bummed. He's telling them, first of all, that one of their, one of their, their inner circle, the, the band of brothers, the 12, one of them is going to actually betray them all to the authorities. And, uh, and so that's looking bad. That, that hits them really hard. They never saw that coming. Secondly, he tells them that he's leaving and that they, this time they, they can't follow him. And this is crazy. I mean, they've left everything, traveled all over the country following him, and now their leader is leaving them. And so they're, they're incredibly bummed. And then on top of that, their, their leader of the band is like Peter, and he says, well, no way, I'm, not, I, I'm sticking with you. I'm not going to not follow you. I'm, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll die for you. And he says, well, actually, by the end of the night, you're going to disown me three times. And so it's just like it's, it's such a downer. I mean, it's just a downer evening. Lots of things going down. You thought you had a bad dinner party. This one's just really, it's really going down. So anyway, uh, so Jesus is kind of, they're reeling. By the end of dinner, they're reeling. Their whole future is, you know, uh, kind of flashing with the eye. It's just like it's miserable. And so he, he's reaching out, trying to steady him, and he wants them to know, hey, this is all part of a plan, that I, I'm leaving, it's true, but I'm coming back. I'm going to my father's house, uh, but I, I'm going to come back. We're going to all be together someday. 
And, uh, and so he's trying to steady them. And he says, uh, and, you know, and, and you all know the way to where I'm going. Well, of course, they didn't know where he's going, so how could they know the way? And so, um, and so we, what are you talking about? They're just totally confused. And so that's where we're picking up the story, all right? So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter uh, 14. And uh, we'll, we'll just jump back at verse 1, kind of pick up the storyline, but we're going to get real serious about verse 6. So John 14 and verse 1 says, um, don't let your hearts be troubled. Of course, they're freaking out. This is the passage we looked at last week. Don't let your heart be tarasso. Remember, trust in God, trust in me. My father's house, kind of a, it's kind of a, a picture, uh, a metaphor for heaven, the next life. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms, um, room for all of us. If it were not so, I would have told you, yeah, it's true, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. But if I go and prepare a place for you, then I'll come back. I'll take you to be with me so we can be together in the future. And this is where he says, and you know that you know the way to the place where I'm going. And, of course, they, they have no idea where he's going. Uh, they, he's going to the Father, wherever that is. But So Thomas, one of his men, verse 5, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so, so how can we know the way? And so then Jesus makes a statement. that What he's talking about, the way to the Father, a way to a relationship with God, a way to the next life, to be part of this next life that he's proclaiming. That, that the way there, it's, it's not a literal way like a road or path, but it's, it's a spiritual way. And it's, a, it's through a relationship with him that we come into relationship with the Father and that we get prepared for the next life. And so he says in verse 6, he says, actually, uh, I'm the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father. You're not going to get this next life. You're not going to have a relationship uh, with God apart from me. And so in verse 7, he says, if, in fact, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. Now, of course, this is what Jesus has been saying for the last three years. We've seen it several times in John. To see me is to see the Father, that kind of thing. And so he's going to launch into that a little bit more. He says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So in other words, uh, they're entering into a new stage of their relationship with Jesus. By the end of the night, he's going to be arrested and then crucified, raised again. And then about a month and a half from now, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And that's going to initiate a whole new level of relationship. And they're going to know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in a whole new way that they haven't yet experienced. And that's what he said when he says from now on, you know, from this point forward, you do know him and have seen him. You're entering in this new, a new era. And so Philip, one of his men, says, Lord, could you just show us the Father and, and that will be enough for us. So they're in the crisis mode. Their lives are falling apart. And in the Old Testament, during times of crisis, God appeared to Moses. God appeared to uh, Ezekiel he appeared to Isaiah, and so he's talking about going to the Father, seeing the Father, and they said, could you just show us the Father? That would just be awesome. We just have a vision of God. And Jesus says something amazing. He says, uh, don't you know me, Philip? Um, don't you realize who I am? That even after, even after I've been with you such a long time, three years, Philip, we've been together, you, you don't get it yet. You don't really realize who I am yet, do you? You don't really fully understand this. He says, then he makes this amazing claim, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, now I know we're in church, you know, and we get used to this stuff. We get used to these kind of statements. But can you imagine anyone in the world saying this? Uh, you go to a church and the pastor says, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen God. <laughs> like, what? You're going to be looking for a new church, aren't you? <laughs> it's like pretty soon you're going to be passing the Kool-Aid out or something. It's like... Like, this is, this is over the top, you know? 
Like no one talks, like, like Buddha doesn't talk like this, like Confucius doesn't talk like this. Muhammad doesn't talk like this. Like no one talks like this. People that talk like this get locked up, put in a mental institution. They, they think they're God. Um, but that's what he says. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. And so he says, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe? Don't you get it? I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. The words that I say to you, they're not my own. I'm not making this up. Rather, it's the Father who's living in me, who's doing his work. This, my teaching, what I'm saying, my, my miracles, what I'm doing, it's, it's this union I have for the Father that, that's, that's doing this. Believe me, verse 11, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Just trust me. And he said, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So this is what we've seen all through the Gospel of John, that Jesus is doing these miracles that are, are signs, of evidence of who he claims to be. It's one thing to claim, if you see, the, see me, you see the Father. It's another thing to raise the dead. It's another thing to turn water into wine. It's another thing to walk on water. Uh, you know, you can tell me that you're God, but uh, your, your stock's going to go up and you start doing some of those things, you see. <laughs> Verse 11, uh, believe me, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, or at least believe on evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you, now he's kind of changing, uh, ch- changing gears here. He's uh, been talking about he's going, he's going to the Father and uh, who he is and the way to the Father, but now he wants to talk to him about their assignment in his uh, in his absence, he's leaving, going to the Father. But their assignment is a movement. That's why we call this this, this mini series, the Spirit and the Assignment. That's the assignment's going to come up over and over again. And so he says, uh, "I tell you the truth: anyone who is who has faith in me will be do will do what I've been doing, and he will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father." So, in other words, I, I'm leaving now, but this movement I've started is going to continue on. And of course, we're going to see this in the Book of Acts. We're going to see in the book of Acts, we're going to see when the early church is born and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes in and now you don't just have Jesus teaching, you've got the, the whole church teaching and you've got the movement of Jesus expanding unlike anything that happened during his lifetime and you have all these miracles happening and so no longer is it the miraculous limited just to the, the person of Jesus, it's now throughout the church being spread and so he says it's going to even expand after I go. And in verse 13, he tells us one of the ways that God's going to work supernaturally is through prayer. He says that I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. So I, I'm leaving. I'm going back to the Father. You're down here, but we're going to have this connection. You're going to ask. I'm going to answer. The movement's going to go forward. And we're going to talk more about uh, prayer later on in this series because this is a big topic in this last night of Jesus. He's going to talk about it five times, and so we'll, we'll pick it up later. And in verse 14, he says, you may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. All right? So that's the passage. So the disciples, they're, they're freaking out because Jesus is leaving. Uh, Jesus reaches in, tries to steady them. He tells them this is part of the plan. Uh, it's true I'm going, but the reason I'm going is to prepare a place. I'll, I'll come back. We'll be together. You know the way. No, we don't. Don't really know the way. Yes, you do. It's through a relationship with me. If you really understood who I was, you'd understand that statement. And in the meantime, as I go, uh, as a movement, uh, you're going to have this assignment. You're going to take the movement of Jesus and spread it. It's going to become even greater things after I go than it's been here and now. Okay, so that's the flow. Now, uh, what I want to uh, focus on today, though, is this um, uh, controversial statement of Jesus, probably the most controversial statement of Jesus in the whole New Testament, or the, uh, or the whole New Testament, one that's really at odds with our culture today, this statement in verse 6, that I'm the way, I'm the truth, 
I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so there in your note sheet, there's a section called the claims of Jesus. And I want to talk about these three claims and why they're important and what they mean. And kind of unpack them a little bit, some of the implications for us as Christ's followers. So let's start off number one. Um, this is one of those easy phone the blanks. You can probably guess what they're all going to be. But uh, the first one's the way. No, I'm not giving you any hints beyond that. What the other two are. Mm. So, so the first claim, let's get clear on this. Jesus is, is claiming to be the way to God. Uh, in fact, he's claiming to be the only way to God. Now, this comes from, let's pick it up at 14.4. See what he says. He says, you know the way. Okay, that you know the way. You know the way, the way to where? The way to the Father, the way to the next life, the way to knowing God. That's the topic. You know the way. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, verse 5. So how can we know the way? And so it's an answer to this that Jesus says, I am the way. Uh, it's, not, it's not like a road. It's a person. I am the way. In fact, I'm the truth, and I'm also the life. And no one comes to the Father. They don't get to him except through this way. Like, I am the way. Now, I don't know how this uh, strikes you, but um, this is a claim that flies in the face of our culture today, isn't it? Uh, There's probably nothing more controversial in the whole New Testament today than Jesus' statement that I am the way to God and I'm the only way. Uh, It comes off as arrogant It comes off as egotistical. It comes off as narrow. It comes off as exclusive. Um, And yet, as we look at it today, as we unpack it, I think what you're going to see is when you stop and think about it, um, it only makes sense. In fact, um, it it has to be this way. Like, there's no other way it could be. And and I want you to stop and think with me and just see, we're going to go back to the beginning here. Um, I want you to stop and think what we've learned in the Gospel of John. Now, I know that some of you are brand new and so on, so just kind of hang in. I think you'll be able to follow this all okay. But for those of us who've been here, let's think back what we learned. Remember how John starts this Gospel? He starts it like, a, like an attorney in a court case. Remember that? And he starts, he's making his case, and he's bringing forth his evidence. It's like he's giving his introductory statement like attorneys do in a court case. Here's what I'm going to prove. Here's, what I'm going to, here's, what, here's my point, and here's the points I'm going to make, and here's what I'm going to convince you of. And you remember back in John chapter 1, the way it starts off, that what he claims is, he, says, he claims that there was a time and a place where uh, the God who created the entire cosmos actually entered into human history to reveal himself and rescue us. That's what the claim of the Gospel of John is. In fact, this is how it starts off. Remember there on your note sheet, John 1, uh, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, so, so go back as far as you want in time. Put the beginning back as far as you want. And once you get there, there's this person called the Word. So in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. So he's separate from God. This person is separate from God. He's with God. And yet the word was God. Somehow he is the same as God. And and so then he goes on and he says, through him all things were made. So he's the creator of all things. And without him nothing has been made that has been made. 
And then if you skip down the next verse, verse 14, later on in this opening statement, he says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling. And so there was a time when this word who is with God and who was God and who created all things, he came into human, the human uh, race. He became one of us. And then in 118, the next verse, it tells us why he did. It says, no one has ever seen God, like in our current state, you and I, we can't, uh, our physical condition can't take in the full view of God. But, but God, the one and only, talking about Jesus, who's at the Father's side in this closest of all relationships, he's made him known. He's revealed him. So, so this is the claim that John is making in his opening statement, that there was a time and place, as I've said it many times, there's a time and place when the God who created all time and space entered into creation, became a part of the human race, to, to reveal himself and to rescue us. That's, that's the claim of the Gospel of John. Now, of course, John didn't just make this up. I mean, he got this from Jesus. And so we've seen this all through the Gospel of John. We've seen, for example, in chapter 5, where, where the religious leaders asked Jesus, why, why did he heal on the Sabbath? He says, oh, my dad's healing on the Sabbath. And they said, well, you're now you're making yourself equal with God. Like, well, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, chapter 8, we saw it. Before Abraham was born, I am, takes the name of God. And in chapter 10, we saw it, where he says, I and the Father are one. They pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. For which of my miracles are you stoning me? No, for none of the miracles. It's because you being a mere man, you claim to be God. So we've seen this all through, but today we see one of the clearest statements of Jesus of who he is. And I want you to look at it again in chapter 14 and verse 8 and 9. So in verse 8, Philip says, show us the Father and that will be enough. And then Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you such a long time, Anyone has, who has seen me has seen whom? The Father. So he's making this clear statement that he's separate from God and yet somehow the same as God. This is what we see over and over again. Now, what I want you to catch is this is quite the claim. I mean, no one else makes this claim. I, I mentioned this earlier. In fact, I threw in a, a, a quote there from Philip Yancey, famous uh, author, who wrote a great little book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And look what he says there. He says, Jesus' audacious claims about himself pose what may, be, what may be the central problem in all history, the dividing point between Christianity and all other religions. Catch this. In other words, you may not believe that Jesus was right when he made this claim, but this truly makes Christianity unique. Like no one else claims this. That although, although Muslims and increasingly Jews respect Jesus as a great teacher and prophet, no Muslim can imagine Muhammad claiming to be Allah any more than a Jew can imagine Moses to be Yahweh. Likewise, Hindus believe in many incarnations, but not one incarnation, while Buddhists have no categories in which to conceive of a sovereign God becoming a human being. And it, most Buddhists don't believe in a personal God at all. And so, so here's what Jesus is claiming. And I want you to catch this. Jesus is claiming, I am the way to God because I am God. 
Do you follow, you follow me? See, if Jesus is just a prophet, then his claim to be the way, I am the way, and no one comes to the Father, now we're dealing with someone who's very arrogant. Now we're dealing with someone who's very narrow. Like you're the only, you're, you're the, you see what I'm saying? If you're just a prophet, yeah, that's a narrow claim. But if you're God, it becomes self-evident. Because if you're God, then it's like, well, okay, so I'm the way because I'm God, and I'm the only God there is. Like, let me give you just a, like a, a brief little analogy here. Let's say that you have someone, that, that someone's here tonight for the very first time. And uh, at the end of this service, they come up to you, they, they recognize that you're a regular here, and they say, hey, I would like to meet your pastor. And you say, well, which one? We have several pastors. Well, I would like to meet your lead pastor. You say, oh, oh, that's easy. That's Mike. He's the guy who was, he was teaching tonight. Uh, he always stands up here at the front of the service afterwards. You just, would you like me to take you down and introduce him? No, not really. <laughs> I, uh, you know, to be honest, I, I, kinda, I liked the service. Uh, the music was awesome. And uh, that video, that was kind of cool. Um, this place is gorgeous. The location, the view, it's beautiful. But to be honest, I didn't really like him. He just seemed a little... Uh, could, I, could, could I meet your uh, other lead pastor? Well, no, no, no. We only have one lead pastor. Like, you may not like him, but that's all we got. That's like the best. So, so it's like, if you, if you don't want to meet him, I get that. But I mean, he's the only guy. No, 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 no. No, I, no, I don't like him. I want, to, I want to meet your pastor, but I want to meet another pastor. At a certain point, you're just kind of like going like, what? Like, you don't get it. There's only one, you know, if you don't like him. And, but you see, this is much of what our current culture is doing. It's saying, what it's saying is that, well, I, I want to I know God. Well, great. Well, here's, he's come. He came into the planet Earth. He revealed himself. But I don't like that one. Uh, can I meet someone else? You see? Well, there is no one else. Oh, that's narrow. That's narrow. You're being narrow now. You, that's, that's like, that's being arrogant, like he's the only God we got, you see? And so the first point that Jesus, his claim is making, he says, hey, if you want to know God, uh, I'm it. Uh, I'm, I'm the only way because I'm the only one who's come, as I am God, you see? So that's the first claim he's making. The second claim he's making, oh, by the way, let me say this before we go on. Not only does he make the claim, obviously he backs up the claim. And we've talked about this all through John. Like anyone can claim anything, but this is his 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 um, his his comment in verse eleven. This is his point in verse eleven. Look what he says. He, he says to his men, "Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves." And so Jesus is not asking us to stick our heads in the sand and like take a leap of faith. He's saying, "You check it out. You listen to my teaching. You look at my record. Look at the evidence." And then you decide. Uh, so I'm not asking you to believe me as a leap of faith. I'm asking you to look at the historical record and then believe me because of the evidence. Okay, now, number two. The second claim that Jesus makes is to be, oh, you're so good, the truth. Yeah, the truth. Now, of course, this comes from 14.6. Take a look again.
14.6, he says, um, I'm the way, and I am what? The truth. Now, catch this. He's not just saying, I, I know the truth. He's not just saying, I'm telling you the truth. He's saying what? I am the truth. In other words, as God, all truth, I'm the source of all truth about life. What kind of truth? What kind of truth do you want to know? Mathematical, scientific, spiritual? You know, like, what do you want to know? I mean, like, I am the truth. I'm the word who is with God, was God that came, and I am the truth. Now, so what he's claiming then is he's claiming is he's the one who's come to tell us the truth about life. This is the claim of Jesus. I've come to tell you the truth. Now, this is a, a, a concept that our culture struggles with today, this concept of truth. Like, as a culture, we believe in certain kinds of truth. Like, we believe in mathematical truth, right? Well, no one's arguing over, does two and two plus equal four or does it equal five? I'm not so sure that's your opinion. Like, we're, we're pretty much clear. Like, mathematical truth, we believe in this. Um, and scientific truth, uh, there might be different theories, but there's certain things everyone agrees on. Yeah, that's true. Uh, historical truth, we might have different theories of why things happen. We agree, yeah, certain things happen at a certain time. And yep, there really was a George Washington. Yep, he really lived. And so, so we, as a culture, we believe in truth, but we're very skeptical when it comes to spiritual truth. Uh, we're not really sure there is such a thing as true truth in spiritual matters. Um, I, I was op- looking, I was doing some research this morning, and I was reading in the Simi Valley Acorn. <laughs> and they were um, announcing that there was a new Scientology church or something like that starting in Simi. And there, in, in one of those little, you know, sidebar things, like little quotes, and so the first rule of Scientology is that if it's not true for you, it's not true. <laughs> now, catch this. This is very much, that's not unique to Scientology. That's just unique. That's our culture right now. That, that we live in a culture that we're very uh, skeptical about spiritual truth, whether, whether there really is spiritual truth that's true for all, uh, you know, all people in all situations. Um, Let's go back to that conversation that I was listening in on at the coffee bean. So the two students, they're, uh, they're talking about their classes, and this one student saying, yeah, it's college is such a waste of time. It's not really a learning thing, but there's this one class that I just love. It's been so good. And, and uh, it's this philosophy of religion. So his buddy says, so well, what do you like about it so much? He says, well, it's been fascinating because the professor has been teaching us and kind of pointing out to us, kind of demonstrating us that, that all the world's major religions, that they're all basically saying the same thing. They're just saying, saying different vocabulary, but they're really describing there's just kind of one reality, there's like kind of one, one, one truth, and that this is it. And, and so uh, this has been fascinating. So he's, he's talking about that. And so the, the friend asks him, so well, what do you think about that? Um, this is a great thing because I'm working on this week's message <laughs> that week. So I'm like, I'm paying close attention. And uh, so he says, his friend says, what do you think about that? Do you think there's such a thing as, as spiritual truth? And his friend says, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I don't really know. Um, I believe there's such a thing as uh, good and evil, I think. Um, I think I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure that there's, 
things are always good or always evil. I think that might change over time and change different historical situations from one to the next and, and might change from person to person. And I'm not sure, you know, I'm kind of looking for what's true for me. But, but I think there's truth, but I'm not sure we can know what it is. It's sort of a shot in the dark, really. I, I think it's just kind of a guess. And that is a very common uh, conversation that's going on in our, our culture today. It's extremely uh, common. And into that culture, Jesus walks. Into that conversation, Jesus walks and says, no, there, there is such a thing as spiritual truth. That spiritual truth is not really different than any other kind of truth. Um, it's not different from historical truth or mathematical truth or um, you know, scientific truth. That there really is a God, and he, there's certain things that he is and certain things he's not, and there's, you're a certain way and certain things you're not, and the creation's a certain way, and it's, certain ways it's not, and, and the future is a certain way, and there's certain things, and, and I've come to tell you the truth. And so Jesus would disagree with this particular professor on this issue. Now, um, there, there is something, though, that I think Jesus and the professor would agree to. And, and I think this is one of the reasons we get confused as a culture, because um, if you were to study uh, world religions, this is what you'd find. I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've studied this, is that what basically world religions agree on, uh, for the most part, is what you might call the moral code of the human race. Um, that, that most world religions would teach you should be kind to your neighbor. They would teach you should... Uh, live a selfless life, a life of service. They would teach, tell the truth, uh, don't lie, uh, don't kill people, don't steal. The, the basic moral code of right and wrong is what they, they would teach. And so I think this is what creates a confusion, that if you, if you study world religion, you see this similarity. Um, and, and so uh, this is exactly what you would expect, of course, if there is a creator who, and we're created in his image, you would expect that we would be stamped with a sense of right and wrong, a sense of conscience, you might call it. And this is exactly what the Bible says in Romans chapter 2. It says this, that, that, uh, that we all have a sense, an internal sense of right and wrong, and that even if we never hear anything about Jesus or anything else, that this is what will be judged on. It's how we respond to that, that moral code. And so I think Jesus would agree with that, with the professor. But beyond that is where the disagreement would begin. That, 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 that what, what you find as you study world religions, what you find is they have a very different story of the human race. They have a very different story of um, who God is and who we are and this creation, what it's about, and our relationship with God and the nature of reality and the nature or the existence of the next life. Now, uh, in this time that we have together, obviously we don't have time to go through and kind of go, let's talk about eight different world religions, but I just want to give you like just a taste of one or two, all right, just to, just to kind of compare that with the story of Jesus about these, these kinds of questions, okay? So let's, let's take like Hinduism, for, a, for example. Uh, I don't know if you ever studied Hinduism, but um, in Hinduism, there really is no personal God. There's no, there's no, there's really an eternal, there's kind of an eternal life force or something like that. But there's not a, there's not a personal God in, in Hinduism. Um, 
And this world is, a, is an illusion. This, the physical world is an illusion. So like, I know this looks like a notebook and it looks like sand, but it's really not. It's really an illusion. And part of the goal, if you're in, into Hinduism, is to be able to train your mind to see past the illusion. In fact, in Hinduism, you are an illusion. Uh, you as an individual don't really exist that um, you're, you're sort of like uh, one drop of water in the sea of eternal consciousness. And when you die, that this illusion that there's an individual you is gone. You just go back into the universal uh, force, so to speak. Okay? Um, so, and, so in Hinduism, there's no personal future for you. Um, there's, a, there's a series of reincarnations, but the end of that is you go back into the, the source of eternal consciousness. Are, are you with me in this? Okay, so that's, now again, I'm, I want you to be clear. I'm not at all being critical of this. I'm just describing for you right now a view of reality, okay? Let's take another one, uh, Buddhism, which is uh, very popular these days. But it's, in most of its forms, Buddhism is also atheistic. In other words, there's no personal God in Buddhism. And in Buddhism, uh, so we're alone in the universe, and the key to fulfillment of life in Buddhism is to extinguish all desires in your life, all good, bad, otherwise. Desires are what cause human suffering, and so the goal is through meditation and so on to extinguish uh, desires. Now, the only reason I lay those out there is I want to compare those for just a second to the teaching of Jesus, all right? Uh, so Hinduism, no personal God. Buddhism, no personal God. Hinduism, the world is uh, not real. It's an illusion and so on. You got this view. Now, Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 that's not the truth. Let me tell you the truth. The truth is that there is a personal God who has existed in a community of love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit since uh, for eternity. And that out of this love, he has created a physical universe that's very real. And it's designed in order to reflect his brilliance and his beauty and his glory and his complexity and its truth. And this physical universe is so important that one of the reasons he will die is to restore this universe to its original specifications. And that you as a person are an eternal uh, or everlasting, not eternal, you don't always exist, but an everlasting being. You will always exist. If you're a human being, for you will never not exist. You will exist always, either in one place or another, either with God or away, but you are an entity of yourself and that he has a plan and a purpose for your life. Are you with me in this? Now, can you see how those things are not like two different views of the same reality? Can you see that? That, that these are not just like, hey, we're all going up the same mountain. We're going to end up at the same place. These are vastly different views of, of, of uh, the, the human story. And so Jesus, here's what he's claiming. Here's what he said. The first claim was that he's the way to God because he is God. And he's the only way because he's the only God there is. The second claim, the claim he's making is that spiritual truth is just like any other truth. And there are certain things about God and you and the universe and your relationship with God that are true, and there are certain things that are false, and that he's come to tell us the truth about life. That's the second claim, okay? The third claim is the claim to be what? The life. Very good. Got the trifecta. 
So, so his third claim is to be the life. Of course, this goes back to 14.6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, like the other two, catch this. He is not just saying he's pointing out the path to life. He's saying that he is the source of all life. Physical, spiritual, whatever. He's the source of all life in the universe. And so, uh, and this is, of course, what we've seen him say all the way through John. We've seen it over and over again. Um, he has said that he's come to give us life. And he's used a lot of different word pictures and metaphors. But basically, he says it's when we reconnect with him as a race that we come alive. And so, remember John 3, he says um, we need to be born again, new life. Uh, John 4, he says that he's come to give us the water of life to satisfy the deepest thirst of the human soul. And John uh, 6, he says, I am the bread of life. I've come to satisfy the deepest hunger of the human heart. In John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And so over and over again, he's, he's claimed that I have come to give life. And this life is not like just point the path to life. The life comes as we connect with him. Almost using a computer analogy, it's when we go online with him. It's when we believe in him, when we network with Jesus, his life comes in. He changes us for this life and the next life. It's a whole start of a whole new life. Now, this is an amazing story. And here's what I want you to catch you, catch. Is that every philosophy or every religion has a story of life. They have a story of human life. They have a story of life. Um, and, and depending on which story you buy into, it's, it's really important. Um, so let me, let me tell you like a couple stories here, the story of life. Jesus said, I came to give you life. Let me give you a couple alternative stories because every philosophy or religion has a story. So like the first one, let me give you an example, would be the kind of the atheistic secularist story, okay? This is a, so the story of the, the atheistic uh, or, or secular story is that there really is no God, that we're alone in the universe, and that everything you see and everything you experience is a result of a long uh, billion years of process of random accidents, okay? That's the story. Like, what's the human story, the story of life? The story of life is that everything we see, everything we experience is a result of random accident, all the complex we see. Now, as you open up this story, if you picture it like a book, as you open up the story and you begin to read in chapter one of the story, there's certain parts of the story that are very appealing. Um, like, for example, if there's no God, then there are no rules. And if there are no rules, it means that I can make up the rules as I go. I can define truth as I want, and there's no one to tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want. And, and so I think this is one of the reasons the modern world likes this story, this part of the story. But, but if, you, if you have the courage to read deeper in this story, with, with each chapter, it gets darker. With each chapter, it gets more dismal. Because what, what happens as you read this story, if there is no God, and if there is no, if all of life is an accident, what that means is there, there is no such thing as right or wrong. There is no such thing as truth or beauty or love. These things are all accidental collisions of chemicals in our brain. 
Um, as you read this story, it means there is no purpose to life and there's no such thing as meaning. And ultimately, there's no basis for morality. There's no reason I don't kill you or steal or whatever because if we're living by the law of the jungle, the survival of the fittest, that anything goes in this story. Now, the thing is, our culture doesn't usually have the courage to read to the end of the story. We just read the first chapter or two. But, but there are many who have. There are many philosophers and thinkers out there who have read this story, and they realize how this story ends. It's a story of despair. The story of the human race is one of meaninglessness and purposelessness and despair. And there's many philosophers who've read the end of the story. I put an example there on your note sheet. There's a famous British novelist from the 1930s named Somerset Maugham. He was the highest paid author of his time, playwright. But look what he says. If one puts aside the existence of God and the survival after life is too doubtful. In other words, if you just kind of do away with that, you don't believe in that, then one has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. Like, what's life all about? If death ends it all, if I have neither to hope for good nor to fear for evil, I must ask myself, what am I here for? And how in these circumstances I must conduct myself. Now, the answer is plain, but it's so unpalatable that most will not face it. There is no meaning for life, and life has no meaning. So, so, so if, you, if you say, this is a story of the, of the life, the human race, that we're, we're an accident, and we're just a result of uh, uh, billions of years of random accidents, it's the end of truth. It's the end of beauty. It's the end of justice. It's the end of right. It's the end of wrong. It's the end of meaning. It's the end of purpose. And, and that's why philosophers like this for 100 years have been saying, if we go this route, then, then you end up uh, with an existence. There's, there's, there's no purpose. Let's take another story. We don't have time for all the stories, but let's take another story. Let's take a story of... Uh, Kind of the Eastern religion story. How does that story go? Well, you're a drop in the eternal consciousness, but there is no such thing as you. You're an illusion. I'm an illusion. Life is an endless stream of reincarnation. We get what we deserve in life. That's why we are. This is why if you look at a country like India that has a Hindu background, why there'll be groups like the untouchables. It flows out of this system. They're untouchable because this is what they deserve. This is what happened in a, in, a, in, a, in a former life. And there is no future. And when you die and you get burned on that funeral pyre, that's the end of you. There is no you. That is an illusion. You, come, you see the story, where the story leads? Now catch this. Into this world, Jesus comes and says, no, that is not the story of the human race. Let me tell you the story of your lives. The story of your life is that this world is real, that God created this world on a purpose, and there is a God, and this God has lived in community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all time, in this dance of love from all time. And so the greatest reality in the universe is love. And the greatest reality in the universe is relationship. And truth 
and beauty and purpose and meaning. The reason you long for it as a human race is because that's exactly what you were created for. And I've come to give you that life. And when you die, this is not the end of life. It is the start of life. And let me tell you, the the best thing about Jesus' story, the best thing about Jesus' story is grace. Because in every other story, every other religious story, it's always based on what we do. You see, if you're... Um, if you're a Buddhist, you have the eightfold path. And if you're into Hinduism, it's going to be about karma and good, your good works to pr- produce. And if you're a Jewish person, it's about keeping the covenant. And if you're a Muslim, it's about keeping the law of the, t- of the, uh, the Quran, you see. Christianity is absolutely unique. The story of Jesus is absolutely unique. He says, I've come to show you the way. I've come to give you the life, but let me tell you, it's all about grace. There's nothing you can do to achieve it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. That's why I've come to die to give it as a gift. It's absolutely unique in all the story of the human race, the story of grace. And that's what he was telling his men that night. When he's with them, he said, you know the way to where I'm going. We don't know the way. Yes, you do, because I am the way. And if you know me, you're home. You see? It's not about you earning. It's about a relationship. And so that day, as I walked out of the coffee bean, so distraught over this conversation that I'd heard, knowing there was a conversation that's going on hundreds of thousands of times in our culture every week, and as I walked out, I, the last thing I heard this one young man say to his friend, he said to the student, he said, does it make you sad that you can't know the truth? And he said, not really. And as I walked out, I thought, I can't think of anything more sad in all of life, of not knowing whether we're here as a result of a purpose or a random set of accidents. I, I can't think of something more sad than not to know whether we're alone in the universe or there's a God who loves us. I can't think of anything more sad to know if truth and beauty and glory and justice are real and what we're to strive for or whether the random structures of, my, of the chemical reactions in my brain that have no basis in reality at all. I can't imagine what's more sad than to not know that, the, that this life is not the end, that when we, we don't, that we will be together, that you matter, that I matter, that we will live forever. I can't think of anything more sad. And so into this conversation of our culture, Jesus walks and he says, I am the way and I am the truth and I've come to give you life. And I'm not just making the claim, I'm backing up the claim. Hook, your, hook yourself to my Hook yourself to me, believe in me, and, and you will experience the life you were created to live. Let's, let's pray. Well, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Um, I want to talk to you if you're here and you've, you've never really given your life to Christ. Um, you've heard his claims tonight. Maybe you've heard them before. But for whatever reason, this is the day that it's clicking for you. It's making sense. You're realizing who Jesus is. You sense God calling to you. 
And I want to give you a chance to give your life to Christ today to say, I do believe. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer. And if this expresses a desire of your heart, would you just pray along with me, either under your breath or in your mind or in your heart. Just pray with me. Dear Jesus, I do believe. I have crossed the line. I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I ask you to come into my life to forgive my rebellion, to wash away my past, to give me a new life with you, to send your spirit into my life to change me from the inside out and to save a spot in the next life for me. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you just pray that, that prayer, I want to ask you if you do me a favor. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to be going into a time of worship. We're going to be collecting our offerings and tithes and also turning in our little connect cards. And if you would just do me a favor, and write on the back of that, uh, Mike, I prayed the prayer. Um, I'll know exactly what you mean, and, and, and we'll, we'll do several things this week. First of all, we'll send you a letter that just gives you some suggestions of your new steps in your relationship with Jesus. Secondly, we'll call you. And uh, if you're serious about following Jesus, the first step to say you believe is to be baptized. And we do that every four or six weeks here or so. And so we will set up a time when you can be baptized as the first step of following Jesus. And so if you would just write that on. And Lord, as we come today, we come to worship you. We come to worship you as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. God, our lives are changed because you are, you have come. And so we pray that you would empower us to worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.